Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. When Melissa Gould's husband, Joel, died, she didn't fit the image she had of what she thought a widow looked or acted like, but she definitely felt like one. Joel had been living with MS for a few years, when one day he started to feel sick. They decided to head to the hospital, and 24 hours later, Joel was slipping into a coma. His medical team finally deduced that his condition was caused by a mosquito, a mosquito that carried the West Nile virus. The virus overwhelmed his body, which was already greatly compromised by the MS. Melissa made the agonizing decision to remove life support, and Joel died. She was left as a widow and as an only parent to their daughter, Sophie, who was in middle school at the time. As Melissa and Sophie made their way into this new world without Joel, they soon realized, as many parents and children do, that they were grieving in very different ways. Melissa cried easily and everywhere. Sophie was more reserved in her expression. Melissa discovered new love. Sophie struggled with that development. While they grieved in different ways, they also came together in remembering and celebrating Joel. Writing became one of the main outlets for Melissa in her grief. Her essays have been featured in The Hollywood Reporter, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and more. She recently released her memoir, Widowish, which tells the story of Joel's life, of their love, and of the ways he lives on for both Melissa and Sophie. Melissa, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today. I'm just excited to talk to you more about your story and about your your new memoir, Widowish. So thanks for being part of the show. Thank you, Jana. I'm very happy to be here. So what do you most want the world to know about your husband, Joel, and about the way the two of you loved each other? That I love this question. Um, I think just that through Widowish, Joel is out in the world. Here we are having a conversation about my husband and our life and our love together. That to me is such a gift. I guess what I would really want people to know about Joel is he really was a wonderful husband and father. And he was a person who really had a full life. When somebody dies young, and unexpectedly, you kind of get caught up in the sadness of that. I want people to know that Joel had a full and active life that was full of friends and family and music and sports. He really was a whole person. To me, that is just the greatest gift about sharing our story and writing about him in Widowish. Yeah, I really appreciate that idea that that a fu- the fullness of someone's life, the wholeness of their being, isn't measured just in how many years they spent in their physical form on this planet with us, that there's so much more that goes into that. 
It's so true. You know, I wrote an essay recently and in it, I say something about that, that, you know, he was a full life. He, he lived a full life. He wore his t-shirts that had band names on them. And he always carried around his wallet. And when he died, his wallet had $42 in it. And these are almost touchstones of the life that he lived. You know, like he still, there was dirty laundry in the basket when he died that I didn't know if I should wash or not. You know, think his life took on a different meaning. He's still very much alive for me. And I think definitely through the book and in writing about him, all of this keeps him alive as well. And that is also just a tremendous gift. And you write a lot about, you know, the love that you and Joel shared both as partners, but also as parents to your daughter, Sophie. And one of the things, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I really got the sense that you and Joel were a team. And I just wondered what it was like when he died. And I know you say like, he's still alive and with you, but you were suddenly having to make all those team decisions as just one half of the team. And I wondered what that was like and how you carried his, his uh, contribution, you know, to team decisions as you move forward that way. You know, it was really difficult and in some ways continues to be difficult because Joel was so active and engaged as a father. I say many times in the book and, you know, that our daughter Sophie is an only child. And when Joel died, I became an only parent. Sophie and I both felt the effects of his loss, obviously in so many ways, but, you know, every decision from what am I going to put in her lunchbox today (laughs) to should I schedule that parent teacher conference to should I let her go to that slumber party to, you know, decisions about as she got older, the high school program that she would be in or her extracurricular activities or the friends she was making. I didn't have my person there, my person being Joel to just have those conversations that you have with, your spouse, your husband, the father of your child, you know, I didn't, and he and I talked about everything all the time in ways that were serious and fun and lighthearted, but Sophie was our focus and the presence of his absence was profound. And one of the first decisions you had to make on your own without being able to talk to Joel about that was when he was in the hospital. So, and you know, Joel lived with, he lived with MS for, for many years, and then he ends up being hospitalized with what at the time was a very unknown illness, and then come to find out it's West Nile virus. And so he's, at that point, you're not able to talk with him. He is not conscious in that way. And, and you had to make a really big decision about his life. I, I just, can you talk with us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, Janet, there were decisions I was making from the minute we took him into the, not the minute, but the next day, we took him into the hospital together. We made the decision together. He walked himself in. We really didn't know what was going on with him. It it did not seem to be MS. Maybe, you know, we thought it was the flu, but we weren't versed in the flu. Or when we took him to the hospital, he was able to communicate with the doctors and was not doing well, but he was communicative and responsive. And I thought, okay, he's just, they're going to make him better and 
I'll come, yeah, I went home and came back the next day thinking, well, hunker down and get through whatever this is. And, and then Joel will be home in a few days. But when I got to the hospital the next day, he was slipping into a coma. We didn't know that, but he was changed, very changed from the person I walked in with. And so I started to having to make decisions, everything from, you know, I moved hospitals because the first hospital, which really is a big hospital in Los Angeles where we live. I mean, people go there for cancer treatments and to give birth, but the doctors at this hospital were telling me they had done everything they could to help Joel and he was in a coma and they didn't know why. And so they kept saying to me, you really should move him down to the hospital where his MS doctors are. Um, And again, like that's what's so crazy is that we weren't versed in hospital speak because like had I known when we made this decision to go to the hospital, we would have just started out at the MS hospital. You know what I mean? Like we didn't, we were just going to the one closest to our house. So that decision we made together, then I was making this other decision. And then, you know, as you mentioned, there were harder and harder decisions to make, but every day it was like, I was signing off for another brain angiogram or another CAT scan or another spinal tap, or, you know, it was a plethora of doctors coming in and out. Each one had questions for me. I mean, it, it was a lot, it was overwhelming. And at some point I just decided that I needed to really try to channel Joel and really channel what he would want and what he would say. And I really had to center myself to try to really hear him. Once I kind of plugged into that, I was able to really make some very hard decisions that were coming my way. Yeah, in a sense, it's you're making the decision, but you, but you're also translating for Joel in a way, as you were talking of like trying to capture. No, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Cause I, I, you know, I started thinking like, what would Joel do? What would Joel want? And we were so connected, you know, we were friends for years before we became romantic. And I think that that friendship was such a solid base for our marriage because of that, we were just very connected and we knew each other so well because things were dire and, and so grim, so fast. Once I, like I said, kind of plugged into Joel's voice, I was no longer guessing. I was really just trying to to be his voice the best I could. And the other thing I was thinking about as I was reading through your book is, you know, you and Joel had been adapting to living life with him having a chronic illness of MS that that mm. may have shortened his life wasn't destined to shorten his life. And there's a lot of adaptation that goes along with that. And then he dies of something that's so sudden and so unexpected. And I wondered what that was like for you. Well, it was shocking and surreal. Joel died in November in 2013. And literally at the beginning of that year, starting like January, his health started to rapidly deteriorate. It was a very scary time because he had been living with MS and we had been managing it for several years. He made a lot of life changes, but but life was good. Life continued on. I mean, we, like I said, made some changes, but Joel was managing. But at the start of 2013, 
his health started to deteriorate in ways that were very scary. We together were really facing like, okay, this is what our life is going to be like. And in some ways there was like a grieving period that we went through together because of all the things that we saw were being compromised, his health and well-being, And that's what we say about MS is it's a quality of life disease. You don't really die from it, but it affects the quality of your life. And it hadn't been up until, I mean, it, it had been, but not as severely as it started to in 2013. And both Joel and I were, I would say, quietly suffering with the changes that we saw coming. For him, obviously, it was worse. He was living with it. He wasn't feeling well. And the reason I say he died in November was so that was like, you know, 10 months of us really grieving his health and his well-being. And so when he was in the hospital, in some ways, I was prepared for what was coming because he had been suffering so much in every way, physically, mentally, emotionally, life got really hard. And I think that all factored into all of the things that were, were going on in the hospital and and ultimately his death really it in some ways was a relief to the suffering that he had been enduring. And when Joel died, you know, there were a lot of things you were concerned about, but what came, comes through really clearly in Widowish in your book is that you were so concerned about your daughter, Sophie, who was in middle school at the time and what did you learn from Sophie about how middle school age teens grieve? You know, her grief experience was so different from mine. I was crying all the time. Mine was like right there. Like I had no qualms about expressing my feelings, showing my emotions. I could be picking up the mail or at the supermarket or dropping her off at school and I would be sobbing. And she was much more stoic and kept a lot of her feelings inside. And that was very difficult for me. I have since learned, of course, that everybody grieves differently. Um, But for a long time, throughout a lot of her teenage years, I kept thinking like, is her behavior because her father died or is it because she's a teenager? And I realized the answer to that really didn't matter. Her grief was her own and her experience was her own. I I never wanted her to feel bad that we were grieving so differently. I just wanted her to know that it was okay to feel whatever it was she was feeling because I didn't want her to feel guilty if she, but I didn't compare it to me. She looked like she was fine. And I didn't want that to have an adverse effect on her down the road. I didn't want her to think she was doing it wrong. There's no wrong way to grieve. But at the time I was very concerned about her because she was holding it in so much. But again, she's an only child. She didn't know a lot of kids at the time who lost a parent. So she was really having this isolating experience of loss. And it was, you know, it was a very strange thing. She's got four sets of grandparents because both parents were divorced, remarried. All of the grandparents are still alive, which is great. I mean, that's, that's an amazing gift. And she's got a beautiful relationship with all four sets, but it didn't prepare her for losing her father. You know, she had no experience with grief. We had a pet who had died. It was a a beloved family pet, but it's not the same as losing your father. And they were extremely close. 
it was just a very strange and surreal time for her. That's it's so familiar, what you just said of of what I hear from other parents who are in similar situations where their kids are not showing their grief in the same way that the parents are showing their grief. And it can feel really scary to like, even if people cognitively get like, I know everyone grieves differently, but I would feel a lot better if (laughs) my child was showing me their grief in a way that I could relate to because then I would know something's happening. And it's something I can sort of understand. Yeah. And again, you know, neither one of us really had experience with the loss of somebody very close. It was very discombobulating that we were, our reactions were so different. And there were times where I, I, you know, where she would cry and I would, I would be so excited, like, oh, she's expressing her feeling. And, but then I realized she's just expressing it differently than I am. And again, it didn't, I didn't want her to feel wrong. I always encourage her to just feel your feelings, whatever they are. And I also, like the other side of this coin, Jana, is I wanted her to also know it was okay to be happy and to have fun. And to, you know, she was 13. She was in eighth grade. It was a very exciting time in her young life. And I wanted her to be able to enjoy it, which sounds so crazy <laughs> in hindsight because her father had died. But you know, I wanted her to know whatever it was she was experiencing and feeling, it was fine. It was good like have those feelings. Yeah. I think about how much we need to hear that too, even as adults, you know, that oftentimes in reassuring kids, it's okay to feel what you're feeling. We're kind of reassuring ourselves too. (laughs) It's okay that I'm feeling this and it looks really different than maybe somebody else that I know is in a similar situation. And the other thing you wrote about that again, sounded so familiar to me was this phenomenon of when you write about how when Joel died, for a while, the only memories you could access were the ones of him in those last days, like the really painful ones. And it was harder to get to the other memories. And what was that process like for you? That was really so upsetting because I couldn't remember him healthy and active and alive living his life. I really, for such a long time, could only picture him in a coma with tubes everywhere in the hospital, that was so upsetting. And even when I looked at photo albums and tried to like place the photos and that point in time in our lives, I still, there was always like this gnawing kind of the sounds in the hospital, the smells of the hospital, seeing him, even I'm staring at a picture of, of us as a family standing somewhere in Italy, in my head, I really was seeing him in the hospital still. That was awful. I, at some point, I think, had to just kind of trust that my memories would come back. And that was in large part, too, why I had this ritual. Sophie started sleeping with me. I mean, when Joel was still in the hospital, she just kind of moved into our bedroom. And we slept together every night for a year part of our nighttime routine was reading from this book, um, healing through grief, meditations on loss. Um, And Sophie and I would read from that, read a page from that every night. And then we would each share a memory of Joel. Just that ritual helped me understand that I, I would get back to that. I would, I would get through this difficulty somehow. And on the other side of it, 
I would have my memories again. And I just began to trust that these things would happen. And slowly but surely they did. But it is one of the things, I've said this before, it is one of the things about grief that no one really prepares you for, which is you start to forget the things about the people that you have loved and lost. And that is probably what I consider to be the worst part about grief, is the memories received and you do start to forget. Yeah, that almost fading experience even when you're working so hard to keep all of the memories as current as possible, you know, like every night revisiting a memory, almost like dusting off the library shelf, you know, like these books will be here when I can read them again. But then when you pick it up and it's like, oh, there's certain pages, maybe I can't, I can't find the full chapter. That's exactly right. You're the title of your book, Widow-ish. When I first received your book, I was like, what does this mean? And then as I was reading, I was like, oh, (laughs) you talk about like, I didn't look like a widow or what I thought a widow looked like. I didn't feel maybe the way I thought a widow was supposed to feel. Like, how did you come to the idea of of the concept of widow-ish? What did it mean for you? Well, it was a few things. I mean, really, kind of what you just said, you know, I didn't look like a widow because I was young. And I sometimes feel bad saying that because I feel like even if I were a senior citizen, when it's expected that you're going to become a widow in your 70s or 80s or whatever, it doesn't minimize the grief that an older widow might feel. So I don't don't mean it in that way. But in terms of like societal expectations or whatever, I just, I didn't look like a widow. I was young. I was in my 40s. And I wasn't necessarily acting like a widow because because I was an only parent, I was still very much out in the world. I wasn't home with like the curtains drawn, sitting in the dark, crying all day. I had to keep my daughter on schedule. That was important to me to keep Sophie on track. Um, And in many ways that helped me too, because she gave me even more purpose as a mother than I had when Joel was alive. So people would see me at the market. They'd see me talking to somebody at school pickup, or they'd see me going to a yoga class or something. And so therefore I didn't feel like I was acting like a widow, but I felt like one. I missed my husband so much. I was so bereft, but people wouldn't necessarily know that if they looked at me. And the other thing that I really couldn't reconcile as a widow is that, you know, Joel and I were a very happy couple. We were friends first and then fell in love and had this romantic relationship and but I couldn't reconcile that he was no longer my husband simply because he had died. It was a very strange, I still felt married and I didn't like that there was suddenly this word widow for this thing I was because it didn't connect with how I was feeling. And so I kind of just came up with widowish because of those things. Like I, you know, I didn't look like a widow. I wasn't acting like a widow. I didn't really feel like one, but you know, I was deep in my grief. And so I kind of came up with widow-ish as a result of those things. Yeah, it's almost like on paper, right? You met all the qualifications. If you were to apply for the job of widow, you had a husband who died. So like you, yes, you get the job, but you didn't, it's like, (laughs) I'm not, I'm not really sure about this whole identity of this because I, I still have a husband. I still have Joel. I'm still married even if he's not here in his physical form. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's still surreal. You know, it's been several years since Joel died and I still can't believe it sometimes. I can't believe that like we're sitting here talking about this book I wrote because I'm a widow. Like (laughs) 
it doesn't compute. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. Right. Like how to feel that on all the levels. Like we can get yeah. at something cognitively and live it every day. And it's still like, wait a minute, how is this happening? And the other part of your experience that I, I think a lot of other folks in similar situations and sort of grappling with like, what is my life now? And what does this mean to have this happen and have this happen? And, you know, in the course after Joel died and you're living this life, widowish, and then you enter a new romantic relationship and wondering how, how that was to reconcile being in a new relationship while also still feeling married to Joel and, you know, just all of that. Like there's three different identities coming together there. Yeah. I mean, that was a really crazy thing too. And again, continues to feel crazy and strange because Marcos has been in my life. Joel's been gone for seven years. Marcos has been in my life for around six. And when we got involved with each other, I really didn't think about it. I think if I gave any thought to what I was doing, it would never have happened. But I just decided not to think about it or especially overthink because I tend to overthink everything. Um, but, and I write about this in Widowish, but you know, a friend of mine had given me the advice to keep everything easy. Every decision, she said something like every decision, every choice you make, everything you do, choose easy. And that really stuck with me. And by the way, my friend has no idea. Even when I remind her, don't you remember you said that to me? She's like, I maybe. She doesn't even, you know, the things people say to you and to them, it's nothing. It's like a throwaway. And then it becomes like the most significant thing. Um, but she, a friend had said that to me. And so I applied that to Marcos. And when we started going out, I thought I had so many conflicting feelings about it. You know, I had known him. He was our daughter's guitar teacher. Joel knew him better than I did. But I always liked him. I always thought he was attractive. I didn't know him well. But when our paths crossed again after Joel had died, you know, like everybody at the time, he offered to help with something. And I actually had something specific for him to help me with. And we just slowly started getting to know each other. And it was a very strange thing because I was so deep in my grief, but was also so excited when I would get a text from him. <laughs> or a phone call, or a very loose plan was made for something, all in relation to the stuff he was helping me with, which was music equipment that Joel had that I started to get rid of. Um, I don't know, I just didn't overthink it. And I just kind of gave myself permission to let it be easy. And I was attracted to him. He was attracted to, he, you know, he let it know he, that it, he was also attracted to me. And I just kind of went with it. I wondered too, well, you talk about how when you were in the hospital, right, you could really, you tried so hard to connect with Joel and what he would want. And I wondered, ha have you done that as well in your relationship with Marcos? Have you kind of connected with Joel and, and what he would think of you being in this new connection? Oh, all the time. And the funny thing is, is when I started to tell people about Marcos, just my closest friends, like my inner circle. One of my friends was so funny because she would always say, what would Joel do? What would Joel say? Oh my God. And she was like hysterical over the whole thing. All of my friends wanted me to be happy again. And they, they wanted to see me start living my life again. So I think I was very lucky in that people were very happy for me. I didn't receive a lot of judgment. I did from people I didn't know well and people in my neighborhood. But 
in terms of my inner circle, people were very um, open and supportive. I don't think any of us, including me and probably Marcos, thought we would still be together this many years later. But here we are. And um, but I did, I did in the beginning. I'm trying to. I, I don't know how much I thought about Joel. I was very conflicted. I think I felt guilty and excited, but I was still in so much grief and feeling so bereft. It was a very confusing time. But again, I didn't overthink it. I just allowed it to happen. I do think that Joel wanted me to be happy and, and continues to want me to be happy. So if Marcos is a part of that, I don't know that Joel would mind. How did you talk with Sophie about dating someone? That was the hardest thing. I, I write about it in Winnowish. Sophie really was so furious with me for dating number one, just period, dating, and number two, for dating her guitar teacher. She was mortified and embarrassed. I mean, it could have been like a chemistry teacher. It didn't matter that he was like the cool guitar teacher. <laughs> um, he, I know what that feels like as a kid. I mean, I remember running into, I think, a math teacher at the supermarket with my mom, and my mom started talking to the math teacher. I was like, so mortified, you know, as a seventh grader or something. So I can only imagine how Sophie felt. And she's also just very angry. She said things to me like, no, you can always have another husband, but I'll never have another daddy. And again, I didn't want to diminish her feelings around it. I didn't want to make her feel bad for feeling that way. All I could do was assure her that, that she was still my priority, no matter what, that nobody would ever come between us that even if I were to get married again in the far 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 off future her daddy my husband Joel would always be my husband no matter what and I tried to convey that to her sweet little 13 year old brain that her father and I were still married he just wasn't here it's a hard concept to wrap your mind around you know um but she just what you know she was very angry, very self-conscious. She still is in a way like she, I don't know that she'll ever really get over it because it was pretty quick. I mean, Marcos and I got together. It was less than a year of, of Joel dying. That was very hard for her. They have a nice relationship now. I mean, they, it, it took some time, but they have a really nice relationship. I'm okay with Sophie's feelings around it because I can only imagine how difficult it was for her and Marcos knows also that that Sophie is always in the comfort that I always feel like I will never I would never want Sophie to feel like a third wheel or that she's not being considered in all of my thoughts and my plans and she is like she's just my number one and always will be so thinking about the process of there's there's living your life as a widowish you know, and living your life as a grieving person. And then there's writing about your life as a grieving person, as a, as a widow and wondered how did writing about your experience in, in, in writing widowish affect your grief? Writing about this whole experience has really been the most healing thing I've done for myself in terms of my grieving. I was a screenwriter and made my living as a, as a screenwriter for really my adult life. 
So it never occurred to me to write about myself and write about what I was experiencing, even though what I was experiencing was this devastating loss and this grief. It just never occurred to me um, until a friend suggested that I join a writing class with her and I did. And then I was working on another project. And, and at some point she said to me, I think it's when I had just started dating Marcos and I told her, and she's like, you know, I just want to say, I love what you're writing. I love the novel you're working on, but your husband just died. You're an only parent. You're now seeing somebody new and you're not writing about any of it. And I really like you to consider writing about it. And I was like, why in the world would I ever write about myself? I just, it's not the way I thought as a writer. You know, I was always thinking of, you know, these make-believe people and scenarios and worlds I would be creating. But to make myself the subject of my work seemed so far-fetched and just so out of my realm. But I couldn't let that thought go once she had kind of put that idea in my head. And so I did start writing about my grief and this loss and being an only parent and being a widow in the world and the things people said to me and the experiences I was having and definitely about dating again. And they just came out in these forms of like these essays, which I had also never written before. Once I started writing about all of this, this stuff, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop because it felt so good. It felt like such a, an exhale of what I was walking around with. And it was so healing. And I felt like I could literally have probably written all day long. And I couldn't believe that people were actually interested in them. I had a blog at the Huffington Post and I would get fan mail, I guess you would call it. And, um, and not just from widows, from, from people who were experiencing different kinds of grief in their life. It just kind of kept me going. I was like, wow, people are responding to this. And I started pitching my essays to different publications. And, you know, I, I was in the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times and the Washington Post. And just last week, I had something in the Hollywood Reporter. I'm still writing about it. And then all of this led to me thinking, well, maybe I have a book in me. And because it was again, the most healing thing I was doing for myself, I thought I am going to write this book. And it's also a gift to Joel. And it's a gift to Sophie and I to really have something permanent in the world that's about Joel. Makes me think too of what you talked about earlier of one of the most painful parts of having someone die is the way they start to fade from our memories right. and to write it down and to have it in a book and have it published of like, here's this thing that will never go away that I can, even if I can't viscerally feel this memory, I can go back and read it. And it, it existed. It still exists. Yeah. And you know, what's crazy is I did something similar when Joel was in the hospital and it was, it was, he was in the hospital for three weeks and there were so many emails being sent back and forth um, between me and like our, my email list kept growing of like, first it was an inner circle of friends and family. And then it was just, it kept getting bigger and bigger. And I ended up making one of those, like do it yourself books, like on Snapfish or something, one of those photo sites of all of the emails. And I interspersed it with photos of Joel and Sophie and, and our family, because I wanted to remember that too. It was such a traumatic time. 
And I didn't, it, it, it's not, it's so weird, but like, I didn't want to forget that either. I wanted my memory to be accurate of like, this is what happened in the hospital this day. And this is what happened the next day. And this is what I told people. And this is what they sent back. We, I, it was also that we were the recipients of so much love and support and encouragement by email and text. And those things I could capture and put them in a book and I have them. And I'm so grateful that I did that, that I had the wherewithal to like think of doing something like that. And I did something similar when Sophie was graduating high school. And at that point, Joel had been gone for four years and she and I had sort of talked about all of our memories. I mean, we talked about Joel all the time, but we, you know, we had that nighttime ritual of sharing our memories and they were the same memories over and over and over. And so for her high school graduation, I asked friends of ours to write down their memories of Joel. They sent them to me and I put all of those in a book. But that also was like, it's such an incredible gift to hear what other people remembered about Joel. And so I have that too. And th those are like the things, so like those and then having widowish of course in the world, like these are just ways to really honor him, the person he was and the full life that he had. Yeah, that's one of the things we recommend to a lot of families is inviting when they have kids who are grieving a parent or even or a sibling or an extended family member. And, you know, they had such a short period of time with that person and such a limited role in getting to know them. And it can be so powerful for kids to hear from their parents, friends growing up or their roommates in college or whatever it might right. be to like fill out the wholeness of that person's life in that child's memory. And as you were talking, I'd never thought about this before, but we grow up with this idea that it's so important and good to document happy things, right? We document vacations, we document births, we document graduations, we document these other socially sanctioned positive life events. And then in the opposite, there's this explicit or, or implicit conditioning to rush past the hard stuff, you know, of like, let's just put that out of our mind. You don't want to think about that anymore. When those hard things are equally transformative. And then I think later on, when we're still reflecting on those experiences or still affected by them or impacted by them, we can sometimes judge ourselves to think like, why is this still, am I not over this yet? What have I not done right? Because it makes sense to me that we would want to document and remember to be able to reflect upon anything in our life that is so meaningful and transformative, whether it's socially sanctioned as positive or negative. So I appreciate that you listen to that urge and we're, and can model that for other people too. Thank you so much. I mean, I don't know where it came from. That could have been Joel saying like, <laughs> "Hun, you're going to want to remember this. You're going to want to know this stuff. Yeah. I just think it's so important to keep track of these things. Well, as I think about people listening today and, and wanting to maybe get more connected to your tracking of things or to, you know, to be able to see what you've done in case they want to do something similar. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the book Widowish and I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes, but what are some of the best ways for listeners today who want to connect more with you and your story and the work that you're doing? Oh, well, anybody can follow me on Instagram. That's where I tend to post like just the latest and things I'm doing in my life. And my Instagram is Melissa Gould underscore author. And if people are interested in reading my essays or seeing any of the press I've been doing for Widowish, it's all on my website, which is widowish.com. 
Great. And listeners, I'll put all that in the show notes, but I know sometimes it's just nice to hear it so you can go straight to your phone and, and find Melissa at Melissa Gould <laughs> underscore author at, uh, on Instagram. So Melissa, thank you again for one for writing your book. Uh, I really couldn't put it down, which sounds weird to say about a grief book. And I read a lot of grief books, but I just, <laughs> I take a 10 minute break at work and I'm like, let me scroll through another chapter. It's so good. So I definitely recommend it listeners to, to get a copy of it. And, and just so nice to, you know, I read your story, but to talk with you today and to hear more about Joel and Sophie and, and your life and kind of just the inner workings of that process. So thank you for making time to talk with me today. Thank you, Jana. It's really been so nice to speak with you. I appreciate it. And listeners, I say it each and every time. Thank you for being part of our community. The show would not mean anything if you weren't out there tuning in. So we really appreciate all of you tuning in, listening, sharing the show with people that you think might be helped by it. You can always reach out to me directly at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. That website, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, is also a great place to find all of our past episodes if you're new to the show. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.